If you plan to study medicine, apply for the U.S. Army's Health Profession Scholarship Program and launch yourself into a medical career like no other. It offers full tuition and the support of one of the largest, most advanced healthcare networks in the world. A career of innovative medicine without a lifetime of debt. That's the Army difference. Learn more at GoArmy.com slash tuition paid. Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower, every note, or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew, cruising, you can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at AmFam.com. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and a top rating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Ready for the interview, and if you get a cue live on a laptop, watch what I'm gonna do. Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view. Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto. Real talk, pronto, doctor, DPHD, hit the intro. Hold up, wait, gotta be social, network, global, a home for the local. Gotta be social, network, global, a home for the local. We just had a big conversation before we hit record here. Yes, you seem lovely. You just seem like a very nice, bubbly person to me. Ditto. Thank you. <laughs> She's been listening to my voice for a very long time. I have been. I feel like I know you just from listening to the podcast. <laughs> you know you're going to get some probably different questions, right? Come on, That's talk. totally great. And I have really enjoyed the ones where it's you too, though, to sort oh, of like yeah. hear you talking about something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I again, I'm, I'm into a bunch of different stuff, but now we're into you, Jess. And uh, I, I think when you reached out, I found your background really interesting to me mm-hmm. and like resonated with me. So let's, let's dive in a little bit about your background, what you're up to. Sure. Take us back. I like to go backwards. We're going to rewind, rewind the tape, the story. Yeah. Again, you know. Well, let me just say today, like I am a social worker by trade and I've been in social work for like almost 20 years, over 15 years. Um, But I didn't like land in that space, you know, it's sort of social work is sort of built in you based on life experiences and things that show up in your life and sort of this deep need to be interconnected with the collective has just always been a part of who I am. Um, And I love people like I love differences and I love getting to know people and I have always been a curious soul. And so I sort of was directed into social work and thought I'd do like therapy. Right. I thought, oh, that's how I'll get deeply connected to different people. I ended up in child welfare and seriously found a part of myself that I didn't even know was there. And so I've never left. I've just that's the specialized area that I'm in. And I love, um, you know, people think you're crazy for saying you love child welfare because it really does entail child protection. But I have had the honor to meet people that I would have never met otherwise. And so it's been and at really tough times that otherwise could have you know, otherwise a lot of people are quick to judge. Um, And so I've really gotten to see beauty within like people turning pain into purpose. Um, And so that's how I landed in child welfare. I was in this public system for a long time as a child protection worker, then as a supervisor. And it just started to feel like pantyhose too tight. I was like, Mm. I can't do what I want to do. I can't use the word love in my work. This isn't this because of the boundaries that are around the system and the profession, I thought I need to figure out a way that I can use this, you know, like the base of love, because if you don't love who you're working with, then what, you know, what, what is it built on? So I went out and I thought I can do because I love reflection, curiosity, I went out and I thought I'm going to do merge all of these things I love, emotional intelligence, infant mental health, Um, coaching, professional coaching, kind of the tenets of that and turn them into something in service to the child welfare and human service system. But that keeps me with and connected, but not within and stuck. Um, And so I've sort of merged into that field where it's like professionals and leaders and I'm doing coaching and training and um, still some child welfare specific training. And I get to work with the workers, you know, the only tangible tool any child protection system has is the worker. And so I get to still really nurture the person in the work. Um, yeah, so that's how I came full circle. And now I have my own business, which is 
wonderful because I'm also the mother of five. It's a lot so of work. <laughs> I have to find something that's balanced. And then okay. here I am. All right. So now you started it. Now all these questions just yes. are populating and this is how it works for me. What is the current state of the child welfare system and what needs to be done to change it? Because I imagine it's not good. Bad mm -hmm. It's not. It's really, really poor. The well-being of children and families is really poor right now. Um, and it isn't because there aren't a lot of good people in the field wanting to do really good work. It's just, it's not set up well to support children and families. It's what does that set mean, up. not set up well? It's not like for me, the reason I couldn't be in it is because I couldn't genuinely be my connected self. I couldn't say to a kid that was in foster care that I love you. I've spent two years with you and your family and driving you here and flying with you to Florida to see your aunties and your grandmas. And I really love you, but you can't say that because of how boundaried it is as a system. And so I wanted to be able to say that to kids. And I wanted families to be able to feel like I'm not talking at you, I'm working with you. I really do want you to be well, but the system is not set up because it's overwhelmed. Um, there's too many process pieces like paperwork and things that keep you disconnected from families that then keeps families unwell and makes workers unwell. And you have this terrible clash of clash of people's whys, clash of what people need, all because of like these really constraint pieces that are keeping children and families unwell all the way around. I mean, I feel like this has always been an issue. Like, why isn't this being changed? Like, what, what's, the, what's the problem? Like, why can't we turn this around in a, or is it, is it much deeper than just the system? I think it's deeper. And I think, you know, this is going to probably not resonate with everybody. For, but for me personally, I think because of where powers lay for certain systems, the right people aren't prickled enough by the problem. The right people, what, is, what does that mean? Like um, not everybody feels as if they have a role in the welfare of children and families. So all of us do, there's not any of us that are free from playing a role in the welfare of children and families. It might mean be kinder to your neighbor. It might mean if you know kids, if you have kids, if you care about kids, you have a role in the welfare of children and families. But we put it onto a system and a system is not built well, and ours certainly isn't built that way, but it <laughs> no. isn't built to care. And so if we don't care, the system's not built to care. We just, the problem stays kind of containered instead of collectively owned. It's weird. Like, why is the system not built to care? I mean, isn't the point of it to care? I mean, like. Anybody that's in it is built to care, but the structure is not built to care. It's very um, constrained in, you know, like it, they focus so much on worker accountability in a lot of the systems mm. I do work with. <laughs> and I think I've been in the work, you're working whenever a family needs you to be there, mm. but it doesn't look like an eight to five. So it's really hard within a business model to structure what people are doing and when. And in a relationship, I could spend an hour talking to you that's really meaningful, but maybe I'm only supposed to be there 15 minutes. Well, so that it's, it's not set up for human connection to be the primary focus. Mm. Has, has this, has it deteriorated even more from the time that you started or? I think it's been bad. I mean, I don't think it's been it's like a robust working system. I think awareness of maybe just how poor and how unwell people are staying within it, like worker well-being and family served is the, the awareness is becoming greater. We're really having great awareness of all of the inequity among the system. I mean, it's becoming, we're no longer in a space where people are thinking like, oh, we should revamp or rebuild. It's really at the point of you have to start over. Yes. Yes. I actually feel like a lot of systems are like that. Actually, it's like it's so poorly so done. It's like you can just keep throwing things at it. It's like, okay, it's still mediocre to terrible. Mm -hmm. Your base okay. isn't good enough to hold anything to rebuild that's going to look well. Okay, so from your point of view, what would starting over look like? And this, I guess, is hypothetical because probably not going to happen beyond reality, like currently, unless there's something you know that I don't know about it. What would that be, the starting over? What would that look like? I think it's going to be 
collective care. So I think we can't make it be a system problem. It has to be a collective problem. We really do have to collectively care about families and not have a system that is in savior mode where they take mm. from and build better. That doesn't work. You know, like if you don't take kids out of their system and they become better because you put them somewhere, it doesn't work like that. We know that. I mean, I have five kids. They were built by me and my husband. They were, they are part of us. You have to keep them connected to that lineage and legacy in safer ways, but we need collective care. We need people that like the whole system would have to start over from the base of um, families know themselves better than we're going to know them. Well, like, it seems like kind of the genesis of this is the family, the structure of the family. Yeah. Which, how do you attack something like that? When it's so private and personal to people, and then there's all this inequality. Mm-hmm. How do you, because it's like uh, just addressing the symptoms, but the, the real issue is maybe the structure of where people live. Yes. Uh, people who are living in very uh, difficult situations, mm-hmm. having lots of children. Mm-hmm. Like, it just seems like it's just overwhelming, honestly. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the conditions of it are overwhelming. So it's, it's, it's just hard for me to envision how you approach that as a mm-hmm. system and go without people saying, stay out of my business. Yeah, you, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it really would be like a grand conscious awakening for it ever to <laughs> right. look radically different um, because people do the stay out of my business. And, and so that's part of the problem is the barrier of, stay out of my business until it's not voluntary anymore than I'm in your business. Yeah. But there's nobody, you know, I mean, a lot of, I can think of every single family that I worked with. There is not one exception that didn't want support and help. They just didn't know how to get it or what we told them they needed to do to be successful. They didn't have access to. So it wasn't like, I didn't meet a single parent that woke up and said, I'd really like to be a terrible parent today. That's really my goal. None not one of course man the worthiness of being seen as a person and not thought of as a problem is always there that's the base we just haven't used it as the base so was your work uh child protection with like also like foster and adoption did you do adoption as well Mm -hmm. yeah love adopt we adopted my daughter Mm-hmm. and uh, through catholic charities mm-hmm. uh, we went through and uh just even going through that process and working with our social worker it was like really eye-opening yes like and i think a lot of things in life you have a bias against until you mm-hmm. actually are exposed to that mm-hmm. bias Absolutely. so take us through i want to jump back a little bit mm-hmm. because i don't think a lot of i really don't think a lot of americans know this what does it take to become a social worker yep. and what are the qualities of a really good social worker so I would say the core has to be the uh, any any really solid person that's going to social work's going to find them cares about people. I mean they genuinely care about wellness of others. Now I would pose that as they receive education and have access to life experiences, they become to care about all people. You know, we don't start like we care about what we can see developmentally as kids and what we have access to. But good social work education exposes you to many different things that you wouldn't have ever considered and you start to collectively care about all people um it doesn't you know behaviors aside it doesn't matter anything that people have done all people have value and worth and so good education builds that um and then it is you know it's a professionalized profession where it is standardized by license and you know people have to have passed exams and gone to so much school and then there's grad school and there's doctorate depending on what you want to do with it so a good social worker is built foundationally on really solid education now there are gaps right there are gaps in knowledge and learning but there are some really really beautiful schools of social work in our country that have some really great foundation that builds what was already stirring in the person that found social work how do social workers take care of themselves when they're mm-hmm. exposed to all of this mayhem with the system and broken homes, things of that nature. 
you know, that's where I found reflection. And that's why I've now made it my career is they have to take pauses. They have to take pauses and feel the feelings of the work. You have to be able to feel this was really terrible what happened in this family and look all the way around and be curious about why and how come that might've happened. See the humanity and the people that might've caused the harm so that you can do the good work. See the child. You, you have to be able to slow down. That's what keeps you well. And you have to have somebody because it's a confidential profession. So it, you can't go talk to your husband or you can't go talk to a therapist. It has to be built into the system that you have space to really process and debrief through really hard things so that your feelings don't become that family's burden. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I wondered what you, what was surprising to you when you started? Like brand new Jess and like, what were you like? Whoa, 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 this is crazy. Like, I think for me, what I've always known there's power in connection with people, right? I've always experienced it, but I didn't know it at the level I knew it once I got into this work. And the power of relationship and being in connection with somebody is so therapeutic and healing. You know, I remember being in people's homes and they are mad. They do not want you there. Yeah. But, but that's only the surface of what's there. There are so many times that that's a protection from deep, meaningful connection because they've also been wounded in relationships. And so finding the meaning and connection and really like honoring that somebody may allow you into that space with them, it was more beautiful than I could have ever expected it to be. I would imagine so. Um, what's the status of the social work field right now in America? Like, is it uh, understaffed? Yes. Is yes, understaffed, it's, like it's a lot of health and wellness, healthy yeah. based service. Of course it is. Yeah. It's understaffed. It's underpaid. It's um, undervalued. It is, again, the power of human connection. People are aware is there. And you have all of these people that go through this professional training that that's what they want to do. They want to afford people connection and be in connection with others. And we we boundary their work so much that we make them unwell and mm. then they leave it. Is it a profession that, um, is there a lot of turnover? High, in it? high turnover, social work, different fields, right? You could social work by design. You can go into business, you know, that the MSW is the new MBA because they're great leaders. Child protection though, the turnover rate is, catastrophically high to the point that people the average i think is two years in the field that's it and so think of all the cost of training it it's just it really is so heartbreaking but yeah it's wow. the average across the country is two years there are some systems that are more well that keep people longer and then there are some where they have high turnover every year why is the pay so low in, in these type of things <sighs> because i think it's an unseen profession because it if you see it then you have to acknowledge you have a role in the work too mm. yeah oh my gosh that was very profound like we don't want to be exposed to this mm -hmm. i don't want to so see we have this to we have to participate isn't that a crazy thing that humans do it's like listen i'm going to undervalue this because i don't want to face this mm -hmm. like this is happening i just don't want to acknowledge it and see it i just i just want to like keep it away from me type of thing and their children and often very, you know, impoverished families or underserved families. So their voices are not loud to help yeah. advocate for the need of the service either. I mean, people don't listen to kids like they listen to adults. Another great line. I mean, like, they don't. what do you hear from the kids? Like, what are the kids like, what are they saying? Uh, you know, most of the time they're so what I often hear is how much they love their families. Yeah. It doesn't matter what people have done. They seriously, genuinely know how to love people unconditionally. If only we could learn from these children. They know how to uncondition love to a level that I've never seen before. I mean, only children possess that ability to truly uncondition their love. They're not like, oh, I love you, mom, but only if you're nice to me today. Yeah. They truly love them all of the time. Isn't it amazing how like, there are people who treat their children so poorly and the kids still love them so much all the time. It always surprises me. Like the kids just have this bucket of love. It just never ends. And 
It's like, it's incredible, actually. It is. And what's fun is to help the parents see it. Because once you see, oh my gosh, this person is truly unconditionally loving me, it motivates you to want to be a better person. Yeah. So even as a parent, like, wow, you really have weathered and forgiven. I want to reapply that lens to self. And I want to try to do that for myself. Does it take a long time sometimes? Sure. And do kids sometimes have to be with other people? Absolutely. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there isn't some, you know, loving connection that still should be nurtured, even if it's just the knowing, you know, like for kids, they just want to know who they are. That's what they want to know. Yeah. It was, this is a commentary about kind of what I see. I'm not in that aspect of things, but like when, when we are reaching out, we're talking about you being on the podcast. I'm like, wow, this is like, this is right up my alley because this is an area that needs exposure. It does. But in podcasting, so much of the pitching of stories is about how to make six figure income, uh, imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, everybody's a health coach or a life coach. Like it's, I'm not trying to devalue it, but it's like, it's just kind of the same pitch over and over. I can make you money. I could make you more, I can get you more leads, mm -hmm. but these stories are so rare. I rarely see people pitching about social work or even like the other day I, I interviewed a prostitute, you know, mm -hmm. like a sex worker, right? It's like, I want to, I want to investigate the stories that are not being discussed or yes. that people say, I don't want to talk about this. No, actually, you do want to talk about it. Yeah. You just, you, we need people to highlight these things for that. And this is That's an area I, I love the unscripted need. part. Like, yeah. just have conversations with people where you don't have to sell something. You just don't hear sell and it. learn. And That's exactly right. Because I just, I'm asking this question for myself, honestly, because mm -hmm. I, I don't know a lot about it, but somebody listening to this is going to think, I don't know anything about the social work system and child mm -hmm. protection and welfare. All they know is what they saw in some documentary type, which is great or some sensationalized thing, but what's the nitty gritty stuff? You what's know, I, actually happening, you know? There's so much goodness. So I don't want to negate, there are really terrible things that happen in our world and kids are really poorly harmed. And they, yeah. they do sensationalize that and make documentaries and they do really poorly display the social worker. Social workers do make mistakes though, they, they do. I mean, I have been in the position where you don't see what you didn't know right? Like if you don't have an, yeah. an, a level of self-awareness, you can really do more harm than good, not intentionally, but there are so many people doing such hard work, connecting with people who have burned the bridges with every family member they have. And they're, you are literally the only person that will come and sit at their kitchen table yeah. with them and find them a valuable human. I mean, people are spending these moments and time with families and kids at their dinner tables and you know, I can think of a time there was a mom, she was, we had a great relationship. So here was the power of connection, but I walked in, she's screaming mad. She is pounding on the stove mad. I can feel her breath in my face mad. And I was not scared one bit because I saw her. I saw this super scared mom that had all these protective defenses built up, but she needed somebody to see her. And so that's what's happening in these moments that are unseen because they're happening at somebody's kitchen table where nobody else is, you know, nobody else has access to. Um, but then that person is going home like me with that deep, meaningful connection, but not a lot of resources on what to do with that. Right. I mean, we yeah. don't like, there's not a lot of therapists in the world. There's not a lot of mental health services, there's not a lot of addiction services. Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting. I think about, and you're working this, how has your work in this affected your parenting with your children? It, um, a lot, you know, I think I look at my kids developmentally and notice things that I wouldn't have otherwise noticed. Hmm. And I also have over years of experience developed a level of self-awareness that tells me when I'm starting to get burnt out in the work too, based on, I go drive by every house and there must be an adolescent who's being harmed in these houses just by look. I know that that's my fear response mm. being triggered because I need to do something about my own wellness. And so it has impacted me. I cannot live and work in the same, where the same county, you know, or with the same, because I do not want to know all of that stuff about all of my neighbors and all of my kids as parents yeah. and their friends. I know myself that that would influence 
the genuine path I let them take through the world. So it, it has made me have, you know, boundaries are the new black, like really clear boundaries on where I can stay well within the work. <laughs> I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you would think that like in that job that they would hire a few people to come around and just check on the social workers. Like, does that exist at no. all? Like, that well, seems obvious to me. No, I know. They don't do this for nurses or doctors or social that workers. It seems obvious. Like, <laughs> That's what I think. I was literally talking to somebody about that every yesterday. Like, this is so obvious. It doesn't make sense how you couldn't see it. <laughs> but it is, I mean, they're weighted down with too much work. There's not enough time to get people to commit to even working with me an hour a month. The person yeah. will do it, but their system struggles to give them that hour. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, we're so now into this sense of like mental health. We should be hiring mental health advocates or specialists to be helping people in social work and healthcare sciences, whatever. Say, come here. You're, re- you're required to come sit with me during your shift because we need to, we need to download the stuff, you know, like. There are some that are doing it. And my hope is the ones that are investing in doing that are really taking robust data that shows that well-being is being impacted and nurtured that then people will buy in. You know, everyone does well if there's numbers around it. It's and crazy. So you got to have numbers for this stuff. Like it seems obvious. What do you need <laughs> the numbers for? Why do you need numbers? To, to persuade some person with money? Oh, okay, right. It's, the data looks good. Let's uh, <laughs> let's spend some money on this. Dude, you already know what is going on. Like it's... Mm-hmm. It's crazy to me. Like, what do you need the numbers for? Like, so obvious. Because of the way business is run. Yes, I agree. It is obvious. And anyone in the work would say that it is. Their well-being is what is often sacrificed. What's the future of social work? Like, I know there's different avenues of it, but what's, what do you want it to be? I have a lot of positive hope, like active hope for the field of social work because there's so many people within it that want to change it and move it. And so I think there's momentum building. You know, there's that quote that says systems don't change, people change, and then people change the system. Like that is the social Mm. worker. And so I feel the momentum behind like pushing, you know, my friend Cherish will say pushing the status quo and I feel that happening. And so I I have hope that we are moving in the right direction. Like the time is now for social work. I mean, the world has been in sheer disarray. So the time is now for caring. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I know like for ever, like people say, oh, you know, people in these professions are just woefully underpaid and, you know, your teachers, your social work, everybody lumps Mm -hmm. all that in, you know, it's people working on the ground level, right? Yep. I always see like, what's changing? Like, when are we going to start respecting this more? But see, it's different if like, if you're an entrepreneur, or you got your own business, you have, you have the options to make more money, mm-hmm. right? But you're in a system that you are limited mm-hmm. by a system. It just seems crazy to me. I don't know. Didn't the pandemic sort of show that though? Like for me, I always had asked, I had a mentor ask me once, who benefits from children and families being unwell? And that has literally rattled in my brain for 15 years. Who benefits from children and families being unwell? And of course I have a thousand philosophies around what, but then the pandemic came and we literally shut the world down. Yeah. And I thought, wow, we can move in one instant if we need to, if if the right, if this impacts everybody and they collectively feel an impact, we can move. Yeah. So, you know, it brings me to, we need to shake up the understanding and everyone needs to be touched a little by this well, like the world collectively had felt this unwellness, maybe it will move us towards collective caring. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to have hope. <laughs> is there like, are there advocates for social workers like that can lobby for things like yeah. this? You know, like, I just don't know. I'm curious, you know? Yeah. So the NASW, which is the National Association for Social Workers, has a really, I mean, they're active and robust to mm-hmm. sort of like really amplify this profession. And the current President Mitt is very active in lobbying and making sure that what social work is capable of doing and the possibility behind this profession. I mean, she's, she is out there doing that work along with many people that are, you know, members. Um, I think the hard part is social work really is passions professionalized. And so to sort of wrangle that Mm. and sort of lobby it is, is a little difficult. So they've built 
system barriers, right? We've built a professional barrier, but that's also where I got a little bit stuck in the work is because we professionalized my passion of caring and helping, I also got a little disconnected to it because I couldn't mm. use me. You know, I'm like a love-based person. I couldn't use all of me in the work that was constrained within that system. Yeah, I mean, it makes... I mean, it just seems like a very simple yet complex thing. I know. You know what you know what I mean? Like it feels like so simple, the solutions, but it feels like it's just so complex at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like it's very well, frustrating. It's frustrating and there it is complex because everybody is unique. You and I are unique. Yeah. There is not anybody a social worker can work with that's going to be the same. And so becoming prescriptive and doesn't, you know, doesn't really work. Yeah. I want to get back to parenting a little bit. I want to dive deeper into, you talked a little bit about some things you notice and burnout and stuff, but what are some lessons that you teach to your children that you've learned because of working with children Mm -hmm. in the social worker system? I think for sure it's the collective care. You know, the, like you sit with somebody on the bench. I don't care if you like them or don't like them. Everybody has value, you know, Mm. and it, and then we unpack if someone, well, I don't really like him. Okay. But now we're going to talk about why and how come, because a lot of that is, you know, like conditioned constraints. Well, Mm. they do this or they don't, you know what I mean? It's our, our kids are so nurturable that they're also nurturable to open their perspectives Mm. and have them quickly be able to consider why and how come and get curious because they naturally ask why a thousand times anyways. It's really the parents that shut down the why, because I said so like, (laughs) you know, nurture the why. I mean, they're genuinely curious and we're going to build open-minded thinkers if we nurture the curiosity. Why do you think people lose? I feel like people lose that sense of curiosity as you get older. What's your thoughts about that? That is like I was listening to you talk about, I think it is linked in homogenous thinking and homogenous thinking is safe and comfortable and gives really clear parameters. And I think as adults, the you know, we get really conditioned to pick a lane and stay in that lane. And you know, what's weird about that too. Often we pick this lane. We actually don't even know much about it. Like, I don't like, you ever have somebody explain their position on something and you realize they actually don't know anything about their own position. I actually find that that's the case with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as you ask the person, that's why I always ask, like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Because I'm, I'm always in pursuit of explanation from other yes, people. the why why does that mean why yeah. do you think what what is like if you say something to me i'm like what is that like mm-hmm. i don't that's mm-hmm. like an obvious next question what is that like yes if you never ask that question you're just blindly going eh, sounds good you know but like, we get conditioned to not the curiosity doesn't get conditioned to right, right what leads us we get conditioned to pick a thought and keep a thought yeah to pick a thought and keep a thought mm-hmm. it's like this mental prison like yes. you put yourself in, yes. like I'm here, I'm stuck in this prison, but I don't even know what it is that I'm stuck in. Like, I'm just moving forward with it, you know? And it's, it's kind of like this bias. And I think we suffer from that. And I mean, a lot of places in the world, but it's certainly in the U S from yes. my perspective, this closed mindedness, this homogenous thinking is so bad. It's so bad. Even when part the, of it is because of so when bad. it happens. Yes. So developmentally, we're collectively involved in people's success, mm-hmm. you know, like from birth. I mean, they have to be here, they don't live. And then we right. help them to a certain point, and then they become these adolescents. So they look like big adults. And then we don't <laughs> let them be curious anymore. Yeah. It's now pick a path. You're 17. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Like, what? What 17 <laughs> year old would know that? But we're boxing them in to have to have homogenous thinking pick a lane and keep a lane. I told my daughters the other day, she was saying some stuff she wanted to do. I said, the truth is you have no clue what you're going to be doing. I'm like, you're 10. Like, don't put this pressure on yourself. Like, I, you have no clue what's going to, what you're going to be into. No, like, I didn't. I switched majors because I was young. I graduated high school at 17. And so I went right to college and I think I switched majors, I don't know, eight times probably yeah. before I picked something. Sociology is what I graduated yeah. first with, and then went back to social work because I got into the world, and I'm like, no, this is where I'm most aligned. <laughs> I need to do this, but we, I think, we lack curiosity and we have homogenous thinking because of developmentally when we start to cage mm. people's thoughts. At this really robust, innovative, teenagers are magnificent because yes. they're creative geniuses. I mean, but we don't, 
we can't harness it because it's kind of a lot to manage. You feel like there's like stereotypes about teenager behavior that maybe we can talk a little bit about here. Um, yeah. I feel I like everybody tells you the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. oh, they're going to be terrible. You know, I was like, they do <laughs> say that. Everybody's I, you know, oh, I, it's so bad. They, I use this with parents that I would work with that had teenagers that they were really struggling with. Like now imagine that your, you know, 15 year old was two and he's in the middle of a mall and he's screaming. You know how many people would come to help him? Anybody, yeah. anybody that was around would come to this two-year-old. Now just fast forward 13 years. That's nothing in the scheme of development. A 15-year-old is screaming, they're calling the cops. Yes. Nobody's helping. So it's like this weird time when they still need the same responses, the same nurturing. They're completely cut off from it. And so of course they get compartmentalized to you know self-rely and then we lose connection to collective because we're supposed to manage ourselves. It doesn't <laughs> oh man, it's just weird to me. Like I was not a disgruntled teenager. I wasn't, wasn't a problem either. teenager. Yeah, I was like. And every time people tell me this, I'm like, I don't know. There's, I've seen a lot of people who weren't. Why are you feeding this thing to me? Like, like somebody told you that. Like yeah. somebody told you that all teenagers are just, oh, just wait. They turn into this and it's terrible. I'm not, I mean, it may happen with my daughter, but I don't know. I wasn't though. Like I, and I know a bunch of people who weren't assholes mm-hmm. as like teenagers. Mm-hmm. Like, like this is what I'm saying, this thinking, you know, like, and maybe even the perception of what people are saying is assholes is really just leadership skills developing. I mean, (laughs) truly, like even some of the really, you know, teens are really, really hard to find places to live if their families won't care for them because of this view of teenagers. And often these kids had such resilient, not that they should have had to be resilient, but resilient leadership skills they could engage people in a way i thought the only thing that's wrong with this is what we're letting them nurture through this not not the skill itself i mean the skill itself is great yeah like they're just all bad or something like it's just such ridiculous thinking like i I always challenge anybody like i don't know i wasn't like that man they're like oh you weren't i'm like no like and actually i know a lot of people who weren't like that they're not all terrible like, and are you experiencing experiencing a 10 year old that's bad? Because I know no, my children are not acting like. No, I actually would be shocked if my daughter turned into this mean, crazy person. Like mm-hmm. I would be shocked. Mm-hmm. But I think some of it, though, is let's just be honest here. I like to be very transparent, honest. Yep. Some of it is your parenting. That's <laughs> like cause them to be crazy. Yes. Like people don't like to look inward. And go, maybe I'm the reason my kid's crazy. It's like, I just had an episode with uh, Dr. Kristen Eccleson, who works with mental health and children. And you don't recognize how much your parenting can destroy your child's mental health. Maybe you're the problem. Well, often (laughs) you've impacted it. But the thing that's so hard is we have so much judgment around if you acknowledge your parenting has done something to your kids. There's not one of us that hasn't impacted our kids in a negative way. Of course, exactly. one of us. But we don't give space for people to own that. And even like, (laughs) you know, if you look into development and lineage, my daughter, because women are born with every follicle they're going to have, was inside my mother. And in me, you know what I mean? Like these, the things that are impacting these kids are so far back and so deeply rooted in DNA and legacy that of course your parenting and your mother's parenting and the way they were parent is impacting all of your kids. Yes. So just acknowledge the good and the bad and figure out what you want to change. Yeah. I just, I don't like this straightforward thinking all the time. It's like, well, just get ready. You're in for a terrible time. They'll come back to you at like 17 or something like that. I'm like, I'm just not, I'm just not buying this all the way. I just. And I would wonder the ones that do what happened to them, what happened to them to make them unruly. Yeah, I just think we don't question these things enough. But there's like a line because like there's questioning things and being intelligent questioning and really having thoughtful questions, responses. And then then it there's a line where it crosses into like really crazy thinking and conspiratorial craziness to certain mm-hmm. things. You have to be very careful being discerning about how you discuss these things you know like i think like for me like i have had 453 conversations on this podcast (laughs) and i have been think about all the information that's flooding my mind from Mm -hmm. all different spheres of influence 
I could be easily swayed by almost a lot of these thoughts and opinions, yeah. but I always decompress and think, okay, what was that about? Mm-hmm. And like, I'm going to do after this. What did I, yeah. what do I think about social work after this? Mm-hmm. Like, Self-reflection. That's, self-reflection. Yes. Is the, I mean, it's literally the first level of growing and enhancing your emotional intelligence is you have to have a really strong self-reflection practice. You have to right. know yourself to be yourself. Right. Because sometimes you get introduced to something and you don't reflect on it. And that something may be extremely negative for you yes. to get into. And, and yes. I interview a lot of people in cults and stuff have been in, they think it's harmless initially. Mm-hmm. They never yeah. reflect on if it actually is something negative. It just, mm-hmm. they, they've, they found something that they feel wanted and loved and cared yeah. about. All the meanwhile, they're getting isolated from other people. They're mm-hmm. not reflecting on it type of thing, you know? But the base is the connection, the belonging and the connection is what they were seeking and wanting. And then it's the discernment of, is this bringing me the true connection and belonging that, you know, my soul is seeking. Um, And if you do that, it, yeah, I mean, there are moments of interruption or whatever, you know, I mean, there are moments that you would be able to see this isn't giving what I'm looking for. Yeah. How has your work affected your not like you're not your familiar relationships, but like friendships and uh, those types of things. Um, I'm kind of, I'm, so I used to be considered an extrovert, you know, like I'm a recovering people pleaser. So I was <laughs> considered, I was extroverted and always doing something with everybody. I have found that I am incredibly introverted but also I like people. So, I mean, I have an extroverted side and I'm really outgoing, but I have to be alone. And so that self-discovery is really what's impacted those that have been used to me always saying yes and always being there. Mm. Um, So I would say my circle has shrunk significantly, but those within it are very meaningful people. You know, the relationships really feed me and them. Um, That's been a road. I mean, that's been a probably an ever-evolving road for me to find my tribe. <laughs> I mean, I could sense that just looking at you. That mm-hmm. was like, as soon as I asked that question, something changed. Mm-hmm. There was a look on your face like, oh, this is this has been tough work. Yeah, it, <laughs> has. it really has. That's been the, because, you know, somebody once said to me, everyone has a reason, a season, or, you know, everyone's in your life, a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And that's been really helpful for me because there are those lifetime people but there are a lot of those seasoned people that yeah. felt like friendships that would never go away. And as they sort of did, I thought, wow, I'm finding the opportunity and learning those. You know, I see all the reasoned people in my life, like thank you reasons, but um, the seasoned people were the ones that were probably hardest to yeah. grapple with for quite a long time. Cause it was, you know, like when you start to see things that other people don't want to see, can get yeah. prickly. <laughs> <laughs> I can look at you. I could just tell. Like, <laughs> I, I, this is a common thing with so many people I've talked to. Uh, my wife has has had the same thing. Kind mm-hmm. of, it's this weirdly enough has never been a thing for me. I'm not saying I'm amazing. I have not. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, I don't know. Like, naturally, I've always tiered people into different versions of relationships. Mm-hmm. So, like, I would always see it coming when someone was a seasoned person. Like, I knew mm. it. I saw it coming. I was like, oh, this is a certain time. You know. What do you think built the knowing of that? Because I think I have that now, but I did not have that before. I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. <laughs> because I grew up in a military family, uh, and I always knew that things were going to end with people. So I knew the behaviors of when people were going to end things. I, w- I always knew when it was coming, because it was always an end date. And I saw the behavior of the end date. So whenever I would meet somebody as yes. an adult, and they start exhibiting this end date behavior, I said, oh, this is going to be over soon. I just know, I know what this looks like. And I always had peace with it. Yeah. What a beautiful radical awareness to get early in life. I mean, I'm sure it came with heartache, but of course radical it does. awareness yeah. to get early in life as you walk through, like, I bet your awareness around that could help so many people that are walking towards it. Yeah. The problem side though, is that you become detached from people. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you kind of become dead to it a little bit. So you're kind of mm-hmm. like, well, okay, it's done. We're done. I'm having an emotion about this, you know, like, mm-hmm. but to start having some like, yeah, it is sad that we don't yeah. have this anymore. But 
on the other hand, it's you kind of you see the tea leaves. You're like, all right, we had an intense thing and I see it dropping off and I'm okay with it dropping off. Yeah, whereas, it's like radical acceptance. Right. Whereas I would see other people I knew, like they they would struggle with yes. drop off. Like, why is this happening? Why like it's just gonna be like just it's gonna happen. Like it's gonna be over in like a month. Guarantee it, man. <laughs> like yeah. they're fading from you. You can just tell, like. Oh, what I bet that was good for your friends to know early in life. I did not have that skill early in life. I really yeah. was a deep connector. And so if I deeply connected, I'd assumed that deep connection was nurtured forever and always until yeah. <laughs> I learned you can have deep connection and it doesn't have to be connected, you know, like physically forever. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I, I think I experienced that like frequently throughout my life. Like wow. I could have this real big intensity, hang out with somebody for a long time. And then I could just feel them not wanting to do it. It's the certain mm. things they say and do. It may not even be anything like like from my point of view and there, nothing happened. It's just like this natural fading, like they've moved into a different version of their life. And I immediately accept it immediately. Wow. But other people around me would go, isn't that weird? Like that you were hanging out so much and then you're not anymore. I'm like, not really, honestly. It's like, it's just where we're at right now. And on. I love you have a developmental anchor to where yeah. it came from. Like it was part of who you were just, because yeah. of how you grew up. Yeah. Like, and then you could, but you could still talk to the person, have a great, yeah, different version of that relationship. You're just not going to be tethered like you were yes. maybe physically. I just accept it all. I just go, okay, it's just what it is. You know, it's like, just I'm right there with you now, but it, I did not get there as quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's weird that uh, that that happened to me early, but I think it's primarily because of growing up in a military yes. family situation. You just did the developmental link, which is so important, even like for parents to be able to see where some of these things anchored and find the gifts in it. Yeah. Versus like, this is what people do is if they have differences, they do, they headbutt them. Yeah. Well, you should find meaning or you should have had a feeling like, no, you shouldn't. That's not yeah. how you developed. And for me, yes, I should have had feelings because that was part of my path to come yeah. to where I am. And then here we are today. <laughs> right. And I think parenting too, it's like, I mean, obviously I've never had a child like leave home and mm -hmm. be an adult and that will happen at some point. But I, I also think like, I will be very sad about it, but yeah. I also understand the point of it. Yeah. And I'm not going to dwell on it and be like, I don't know why you want to do this. And some people do that. They're like, stay close to me. I'm like, listen, I, my job is to guide you, yes. up, you know, and it's more closer in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I have to be more hands-on and then I'm kind of letting go. You know, and I talked to my daughter about them. One day there's going to be a life where we don't exist in it regularly. Like mm -hmm. it is now. Absolutely. And yeah. I tell her that and I'm like, this is just the reality of life more than likely. Mm -hmm. So it's not a surprise. You know, mm -hmm. so as much as I'm recognizing that there is a season with children yeah, and a season of super close, like the baby's born and you're yeah. everything. You're just constantly like mm -hmm. every, they rely on everything. And then, you know, the relationship is it kind of that chasm starts growing, mm -hmm. you know, the independence starts increasing, you know, you that's the person, the person, you know, mm -hmm. it goes from like helpless, needy to drunk roommate. <laughs> to regular roommate to like no kidding yeah yeah and then like normal human being and then like hey what's the freeloading gonna stop you know it's like <laughs> absolutely trying to pay you your way human develop. being yeah you yes. want that but in a way that's a seasonal relationship yeah in many different ways it changes yeah so we should wonder be, even know? based on that probably all lifetime relationships have seasons completely you know I mean? Yeah. completely because even marriages have seasons of course you're living lifetimes within lifetimes in a marriage in a friendship yes. and you're just i mean you look at your 20 year old self and i'm 44 you're like whoa what just happened like <laughs> who is this person like it's like cringeworthy when you look you're like ah <laughs> you know people go i wish i was 21 again i'm like no you no. don't man you really don't. You're really stupid. Like, yeah, you could not pay me to go back to that. Right? <laughs> You're not that intelligent, man. It's like... Unless you sent me back with all of the awareness I have now. But what would happen then would not be what happened today. So, no, right. uh, you couldn't pay me to go back. This is a see, this is very high level thoughts about mm -hmm. stuff like this. That's ah, crazy. <laughs> Oh, Jesse, I knew this would happen. It gets all over the place. I love it. It's unscripted. <laughs> it's beautiful. It goes it's where beautiful. it's supposed to. It goes where it's supposed to. The destination is to be determined. Yes, you know? it's a journey. 
it's definitely a journey. Thank you so much for spending yeah. some time with me. And, yeah, it was uh, fun. I learned a lot, man, about the social work system and in your life. So tell all the beautiful people how they can learn more about you. Yeah, I have a website. Um, so we can put that on there, www.rayofhopereflectivecoaching.com. Um, I co-authored a couple books recently. One is about social work, where social work can lead you. There it is, look at and it. And it's 24 different people. So find it on Amazon. 24 different social workers, well, professionals and leaders, telling their journeys, how they got into social work. So it's the person behind the profession. Beautiful. And it's a bunch of a bunch of us sharing how we got into it or got out of it. Um, so it, you can find me through that and 23 other beautiful people. Um, my I'm on Instagram at reflective underscore coaching. I like to connect. So, I mean, I will never be mad if somebody wants to just like pop in my inbox and send me a message. I love to connect with people and just think and talk and unscripted like this. Yeah, I love that. You're, talk you're, about the world. <laughs> you're the type of person that I am very gravitated towards. Mm -hmm. like, Ditto. Just, yeah. Just jolly. Like you get on with them and they're like, just, they're just beautiful. They're just sunshine. They're rays of enjoyment and hope. <laughs> and I just love that. Like, you know, if I get on with somebody and it's real stiff, I'm like, Oh boy. What are we going to do? <laughs> got to loosen them up here. Here's my challenge. You got to loosen up, buddy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I hear you. But that's a fun challenge sometimes too. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's all fun. It's all, it's all a challenge. And it's like, I was telling a friend of mine today who texted me, it was like about their life. And they're like, oh man, do I say, you need to get to start doing stuff that you're supposed to do. Cause this life is short, man. I'm like, so short. whatever you got to do, you want to do, you better start doing it now. Yes. Don't get you know? stuck by the constraints of this, no. you know, our conditioned world, like do what you want to do. You want to have fun? Do it do now. It. Have yes, fun. Please do it. Have, enjoy your life. Don't keep putting things off. No, and no. take care of each other. Like, let's take care about each other, other. and let's everyone will become well. I, I totally agree. Jess, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was fun. Awesome. Jess, is it Hooper? Hooper? Yep. Hooper. Hooper. Yep. Hooper. Score. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, that was fun. Thanks. All right. If you plan to study medicine, apply for the U.S. Army's Health Profession Scholarship Program and launch yourself into a medical career like no other. It offers full tuition and the support of one of the largest, most advanced healthcare networks in the world. A career of innovative medicine without a lifetime of debt. That's the Army difference. Learn more at GoArmy.com tuition paid. From earaches to strep tests, visit Miniclinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's how healthier happens together. Services vary by location. Prescriptions can be obtained at pharmacy of choice. Visit miniclinic.com for details.